So, tonight it's a double feature. We hope. We hope. hope. So, um, it's really, it's a don't know mind. We hope. Um, Maybe I'll share some reflections and maybe Eugene will share some reflections, but really, we don't know. bring a little bit of the, the part after the slash. The title of the retreat is Maranasati Colon, Contemplating Death slash Awakening to Life. So tonight I wanted to bring that aspect a little more in. Of course, it's already been present in the exercises you've been doing with the obituaries and other reflections as we've been hearing from you, both in the room and in the practice meetings, but just to bring it more into the field. So I wanted to talk about how death aligns life, aligns our life in terms of meaning, ethics, essence, what's important to us our relationships, really distilling what's important. And I'm going to draw, in this part of the reflections, I'm going to draw from an article that showed up in the New York Times in January 9th of 2016, so pretty soon after the New Year, written by Arthur C. Brooks, and the title of the article was to be happier start thinking more about your death sounds kind of odd in a way to be happier start thinking more about your death so it's definitely a, a catchy title so in the article he talks about the misalignment problem which we actually know but we usually don't have a name for it so Apparently what the definition of misalignment problem is, and as I read it, see if you identify that you have this in your life, is, so, um, in 2004, uh, there was an article in um, the journal Science where a team of scholars, including the Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, surveyed a group of women to compare how much satisfaction they derived from their daily activities. And among voluntary activities, you know, you might expect that choice would roughly align with satisfaction, right? If it's voluntary, so you would choose something that you enjoy doing. Kind of makes sense, right? Yes? You're awake? (laughs) Yes? Yes. Yeah. So it turns out that that was not the case. Ah, interesting. Scientists usually go, hmm, that's curious. What's happening here? So it turns out that the women reported deriving more satisfaction from prayer, worship, and meditation. Sounds familiar? 
than from watching television. Yet, the average respondent spent more than five times as long watching TV as engaging in spiritual activities. Pretty startling. Five times more. This is a voluntary activity, right? It's not work. It's not housework. And yet, if anything, this study actually understates the misalignment problem. So that is the misalignment problem. What do you think you enjoy, what's important to you, and how you actually spend your time. It's a misalignment of how you're spending your life compared to your values. So if anything, this study understates the misalignment problem. In the American Time Use Survey, apparently the Bureau of Labor Statistics has something called the American Time Use Survey, that it showed that in 2014, the average American adult spent four times longer watching television than socializing or communicating, and 20 times longer on television than on religious or spiritual activities. Not five times, but 20 times longer. And unfortunately, the survey did not ask about hours surfing the web and spending on smartphones, but you can imagine what that would have been. Yeah. Whew. Misalignment problem. You feel it in your own life? I feel it. So, of course, the secret is not simply a resolution or like a New Year's resolution to stop wasting time. Because that, those shoulds, sometimes work, but not as well, because they come from a place of should, you should, you should. And you kind of keep up with it for a while if it's from a place of should instead of inspiration. Then kind of fall off the wagon. Um, the way to really work with the misalignment problem is to find a systematic way to raise the scarcity of time to your consciousness. You find a systematic way to raise the scarcity of time to your consciousness. And that's what we're doing here. And that brings up this beautiful word we're discussing and just relishing with this beautiful word in Pali, in the Buddhist teaching, samvega, samvega, which means spiritual urgency. When you realize scarcity of time, when you realize how precious practice, awakening, all of this is, it brings, it brings up, arises this spiritual urgency, which is a beautiful factor, samvega, samvega. It's just the bright energy, spiritual urgency, bright, beautiful energy. So that's the way to work with the misalignment problem when you consider how limited and short time there is. Sam Harris says about this alignment problem in his um, 
in Death and the Present Moment, in his book, Death and the Present Moment. He says, Most of us do our best to not think about death, but there's always part of our minds that know this can't go on forever. Part of us always knows that we're just a doctor's visit away or a phone call away from being starkly reminded of the fact of our own mortality or of those closest to us. The one thing people tend to realize at moments like this is that we have wasted a lot of time when life was normal. And that's not just what we did with our time. It's not just that we spend too much time working or compulsively checking email. It's that we cared about the wrong things. We regret what we cared about. Our attention was bound up in petty concerns year after year when life was normal. This is a paradox, of course, because we all know this epiphany is coming. Don't you know this is coming? I repeat his question. Don't you know this is coming? You know this, and yet, if you're like most people, you'll spend most of your time in life tacitly presuming you live forever. Like watching a bad movie for the fourth time or bickering with your spouse. These things only make sense in light of eternity. I love that sentence. These things only make sense in light of eternity. What do we do? What do you do that only makes sense in light of eternity? And we act. We spend our time as if we had eternity, not that it's limited. And it's interesting, when life was normal, he talks about, it's, it's also a realization we usually don't think of life being normal. We're always worried about this and concerned about da, that thing, or, or we don't quite realize many times how normal our life is compared to people, for example, who are living in war-torn countries or territories. Life is pretty normal. It's very normal. Also, like his line about, you know, like watching a bad movie for the fourth time or bickering with your spouse, you know, when you realize the, the scarcity of time when you really sit with that. It brings awareness to our relationships. Are we taking the people in our lives for granted, more or less? Are 
our relationships as rich as they can be. Speaking of eternity, if we had eternity, that's another interesting reflection. And what I want to to bring up with that is, you know, <coughs> in in many stories, um, there has been this this quest for the elixir of life you know, in, in many different cultures historically looking for the elixir of life so that one could live forever and in fact in Silicon Valley there are plenty of efforts to try to make us live forever but that's another talk And yet, let's consider for a moment, let's consider a thought experiment um, about immortality. And this, what I want to share with you, is, is um, from an opera. The story is um, called The Markopoulos Case. And it's an opera written by the Czech composer Janacek. And I saw this a few years ago and it really affected me. And the question that it, the premise is the tedium of immortality, the tedium of immortality, which I had never considered. Huh, immortality can be really rough. (laughs) So in this story, The setup is that um, the um, there is a woman. Uh, we meet her when she is three hundred twenty-seven years old, but she looks like she's thirty. Uh, she's like twenty-seven years old. She has an extra three hundred years on her, but she's in a body of a twenty-seven-year-old. So what has happened? is that um, she was the daughter of the, the physician to, to the king. And um, the physician came up with an elixir of immortality. And the king tells the, um, the physician, mm, I'm not going to take this. You should you try it on your daughter first. If she survives, if she makes it, then I'll drink it. So the physician's daughter being the protagonist, she drinks the, the potion and she passes out. And when she passes out, the king is very upset and kills uh, the physician. And then when the, the young woman wakes up, she's immortal for 300 years. She, so at that time, only she knows what has happened. So she continues to live under many different names in different cultures, having many different relationships and begetting lots of different offsprings. And just the story gets very complicated. So we meet up with her 
when the um, the potion the potion has about a three hundred year span, and actually there's three years left. Yeah, so so she's three hundred twenty seven, and there's three years of it left. So she's desperate to get the the recipe back because she's losing her life force. So she comes back, and there's a complicated story, and her lawyers involved, and you know, <laughs> and and um, there's a so um, basically she, complicated plot. As operas tend to have, and um, she finally manages to get you know through all of, you know many things that she does. Um, not according to the five precepts, many things she does, she finally gets what she wants. And this is towards the end of the opera. Now she has the, what she's been looking for, this, um, this recipe so that she could live another 300 years. At that point, she, she has this realization that she's really tired of life. She's tired of this samsara, this coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, the tedium of immortality, of loving, of losing, of having children, of just all of it over and over and over again. It's an interesting perspective to discover. And as I was sitting, of course, there's the music and there's, you know, building up to that moment, it hit me. Wow, never considered that. That death gives life meaning. Death gives life meaning. I just want to share the last poem of this, one, one of the poems of this opera, one of the final ones. She says, she sings, it's a great mistake to live so long. Oh, if you could only know how easy life is for you. At this point, she's talking to a bunch of mortals, regular people like us. She's like, oh, if you could only know how easy life is for you. You are so close to life. You see in life some meaning. Life has for you some value. Fools, how happy you are. It's this intimacy with life. Life for you has value. Ah, how happy, how lucky you are that you're intimate with life. You're so close to life. She sings, and it's due to the paltry chance that you will all die soon. This is due to that. You believe in mankind, love, virtue, progress. There's nothing more than you can want. But in me, life has come to a standstill. I cannot go on. How dreadful this loneliness. In the end, it's the same, singing in silence. There is no joy in goodness. There is no joy in evil. Joyless in the earth, joyless in the sky. So to consider, to consider what we fear is actually our joy. It gives our short life meaning. It makes it intimate makes it valuable, it gives, it gives it juice, if it was spread over an infinite number of years, it wouldn't feel the same. 
So if we can put that on for size and feel into that. And one way to bring up the scarcity of time in our limited life, since we don't have a potion of immortality, one way to bring up the scarcity I was talking about earlier for in order to work with the misalignment problem. In our practice, there's what call there's what's called five contemplations. They're beautiful contemplations. And the Buddha recommended that these contemplations be done every single day, every day. And I'd like to share them with you and you can even close your eyes and whether you know them or not, let them wash over you and let them settle into your body. First one, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. The second one. I'm of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. The third one. I am subjected to the results of my own actions and I am not free from these karmic effects. I am subjected to the results of my own actions and I am not free from these karmic effects. The fourth one, I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. And the fifth one, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will change, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will change, will come otherwise, will become separated from me. I can post these on the board. And one thing I wanted to also mention is, you know, as we sit with this contemplation and it seems so serious and Actually, <clears throat> you might have already discovered this in your own contemplation, that there's something about death contemplation that actually loosens the tightness in you, makes you a little more free, a little more easy. And in fact, there is some research suggesting that you know, this cultivation of awareness of the scarcity of your time doesn't make you grim and serious. In fact, it makes you more funny. Two scholars in 2013 published an academic paper 
where they um, actually did a very interesting thing. So they had, they primed unsuspecting subjects. So they, they primed one group to think about death and they primed another group to think about pain. They both sound pretty grim, right? Okay. Group A, death. Group B, pain. All right. So they were primed to contemplate these two. And then they gave them, they gave each group these, um, if you've seen these um, New Yorker cartoon um, uh, contests where you get a New Yorker cartoon and it doesn't have a caption. And you get to write a caption, you, write, you get to make up a caption. Okay, so that's where these people were given up. They, they give in to. They were given captionless cartoons to caption. Okay. And then, after this was done, they took, the, the researchers took another group of, of subjects and had them rate these cartoons and of course, not knowing which is which, in terms of funniness. And guess which cartoons were considered to be significantly more funny? Yeah, the people who were primed about death. Yeah. yeah. It loosens something, it frees something. It can. So the last thing I want to share is, is one of my um, favorite death contemplation poems by Rumi. And and since I'm Persian, I can actually read it in Farsi and translate it for you. So here we go. So this is what it sounds like. Andakandak zinjahane hastonist ni stan raftan do hastan mirasand. I read it one more time. Andakandak zinjahane hastonist ni stan raftan do hastan mirasand. If you're curious what it looks like. This is my death contemplation t-shirt. <laughs> this is what it looks like in Farsi, the script, if you can see. I made, had this made a bunch of years ago because I love this poem. And now you get it translated. So, andakandak in Farsi means little by little. You can kind of hear it, right? Little by little, andakandak. There is a re- repetition, andakandak. And Akandak, little by little, Zinjahane Hastunis, from this world of existence and non-existence, little by little, from this world of existence and non-existence, from this world of being and non-being. And I love that, this world of being and not being, they're both here, razor's edge, being and not being is right here in this world. Little by little, from this world of existence and non-existence, from this world of being and non-being. The second part, ni stan raftand, those who don't exist, 
those who are no longer, they have left, they have gone already. And those who exist, those who are still living, they will arrive, they will catch up to them. So let me say it one more time. اندک اندک زین جهان هستو نیست نیستان رفتند و هستان میرسند Little by little from this world of existence and non-existence Those who don't exist have left and those who do exist will catch up to them will catch up to We will catch up and it's in this world So that's it for now Thank you This evening, we uh, have traditionally left an evening where we don't know what we're going to do. And we, we have at each retreat, and then we make it up a little. And so um, we're improvising together. <clears throat> and it's beautiful. What are you, what's happening? <laughs> what are you doing? Turning me up, yeah. I've been very quiet today. I've been I've taught a lot today down at the teacher training, and and uh, yeah, I f- I feel quiet and actually quite good, and happy to be here with you. I'm. Uh, we were both talking this morning about. Uh, what a good retreat this is. And of course we know that, um, you know, we remember that, but when we're here and we're with you, we see it and feel it with you and what's happening here. And it may not always feel so good to you, but, but <laughs> which is true and that's true, but it's still from our perspective, we see the goodness living here and living even in the difficulty of this retreat where we're contemplating death. And so then when I came back, which I came back late after teaching because a lot happened down there, and I met with uh, Nikki at dinner, and we were talking, and she brought up the word urgency, that she wanted to talk about urgency. And I said, great. And I said, you know, of course you know the Pali word, samvega, because it's such a beautiful word. It's, and I don't, I'm not a scholar at all, but I feel like, oh, samvega, it's in the word, is what is pointed at when they say urgency, the urgency of practice, and how poignant it is that we're here and we even have the opportunity to practice, given that. Um, you know, if, if we had prepared a talk, maybe I'd have a really big clock about 10 feet high, ticking, tick, 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 tick. Because 
that's ha that clock is ticking for all of us, and it's part of what what Nikki is pointing to about life and death. That the fact that it's temporary is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's very poignant because it informs our life. It informs our intelligence. It informs our um, um, It informs our questioning of what do we actually want to do here? Because tick, 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 tick is happening all the time. And the tricky part about the tick, 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 tick is it's not a 24-hour day. It may be, but it may be a five-minute day or a one-hour day, or a, you know, 20-day, 20 20-hour 20 day, or maybe 20 days, but we don't know. And so the not knowing that you began investigating today is such an important part of our practice. And in many spiritual traditions, not knowing is highly valued. And you, you know, excuses if I repeat anything that Nikki said, but not knowing is just so important in any spiritual tradition because it's true. We don't know what's going to happen and we don't know when anything is going to happen. And there is one of my favorite spiritual books of my life is called Freedom from the Known by Krishnamurti. And I love the title so much, Freedom from the Known. And it really, I, I really, it's like he so nailed it in the title, I didn't even read the book. <laughs> no, this, is, this is true, I'm being honest. It was like, why, why do I need to read what he has to say about it? He got it, right? That the known can, can start to veil the unknown. Because we think we know what's going on. We think we know who we are. We think we know what we are. And it was one of the things that came up in the teacher training today as I started pointing at not just who was answering my questions, but what was answering my questions. What do we take ourselves to be? And so the, the not knowing brings up what's called sometimes great doubt in Buddhism. And there's two kinds of doubt. There's, a, there's small doubt, which is part of the hindrances, like, oh, is this right, or is this wrong? Should I do it, should I not? And that's, you know, just normal and part of life. But great doubt is asking a bigger question. What is this? What is this body, heart, mind, really? Like we call it a body and heart and mind, but what is that? Or what is consciousness? Or what is awareness? And so there's a whole nother level of question that's possible when we see we don't know what's going to happen. And we don't know how long what we call me is going to be here. And the Buddha said very simply, he said it often, and he, he said, 
ardently do today what must be done. Ardently do today what must be done. Who knows? Tomorrow, death comes. Right? He's just talking very plainly, very specifically. And so death asks us to really look at what do, what do I care about? And how do I want to live my life? Because we won't be here forever. And that's not a mistake. But it, as Nikki's saying, it informs our life. And then it can begin to nourish our aliveness because we're not attached to the notion of permanence, right? It's one of the great um, uh, areas of delusion that we have, and maybe I'm wrong about you, you know, might be, but that we think we're gonna be here forever. Even though we know, we have the idea, oh yeah, I'll die sometime, sometime in the future, like way in the future. And one of the great things about getting older is, oh, tick, 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 the ticking, it's a little louder and a little closer together. Because when you're, you know, when you're 10 or 15, or it's, you know, you just, you don't even think about it, right? Or, you know, maybe 20 you think a little, or 30 a little, or 40 a little, or 50 a teeny bit more. And 60 you start to, oh, I'm getting a little, and then 70, oh, you, you, you're, you, right? So there's some people who might be uh, 70 here and they are nodding their heads because it changes one's perspective on life when one really gets, we're going to die. And that's not a bad thing. The, it, it, traditionally, in many, many cultures around the world, it's called the wisdom of aging the wisdom of aging. And, in, our, and in, the, in the conventional culture in America, and I don't mean all the specific, you know, smaller cultures, but in the greater culture, there's not a lot of appreciation of aging and the wisdom that comes with aging and is a beautiful part of aging because you start to see the big picture. And the big picture includes that there's an end to the movie. You won't be able to see it four times. Right? Right? It really only happens once. And there's more to say. There's a lot more to say. I'll say a little more in the next few days in Buddhism about the immediacy of life, which is just here for a moment, actually. And in our direct experience, there's only this moment of life. And so we have a lot of beliefs about death and a lot of projections, which I would imagine you're all seeing some of them. You're all having some uh, illumination of some of your attitudes or beliefs or ideas about death. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's happening here in different ways. 
and some of us are, are angry about death or afraid of death. Or, and then you look through the human history and of course this is all very normal, not just that we're gonna die, but cultures have looked at death to wake up or to discover wisdom. When I was a young man, I read the, uh, the books by Don Juan, about Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda, which were very beautiful, powerful books about a certain kind of spirituality and, and practice. And, uh, and uh, Don Juan always said, oh, keep death on your shoulder. Keep death on your shoulder because someday death will come for you and you want to be ready and you want to live your life knowing that death will come for you. You don't want to pretend death isn't here. And it doesn't mean we have to be maudlin, but it does mean it's something about growing up that is so beautiful. And to me, growing up means to be real about what's true. And in Western society, this is in, uh, I think, Greece. Socrates, was he Greek? Okay, thank you. Um, he said, to fear death is no other than to think oneself wise when one is not. How's that for a teaching? <laughs> to fear death is no other than to think oneself wise when one is not. To think one knows what one does not know. I'll say it again. To fear death is, to, is no other than to think oneself wise when one is not, to think one knows what one does not know. Right? No one knows whether death may, be, may, may not be the greatest of all blessings, yet people fear it as if they knew that it is the greatest of evils. That's, and he, Socrates was considered a pretty wise guy. <laughs> That's not a, I didn't mean that pun, but, <laughs> but he might have been a little bit of that too. Come on, I'm open to it. I like those kind of people. But it's pointing to something that's paradoxical. We don't know what's going to happen and, and we act we, in reaction to it, either what you've been calling trauma therapy, what the current edition of psychology is calling terror management. terror management, yeah, which is getting a big run right now, which is great. And so terror management uh, theory is say, talking about how we're afraid of existential reality, and, and we are, right? until we land in the fact that we are existential reality, then that might get more interesting for all of us. And when we see that life and death are, as I was saying the first night, are quite connected, right? Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken, do not waste this time. It's such, such a simple, beautiful teaching that we're emphasizing here. And you're letting yourselves steep in it, which is really a blessing, even if it's difficult. You're steeping in the truth. 
you're steeping in something most people react to. <clears throat> and that paradox is important. I've got to keep time because I didn't prepare myself at all. Um, although I did get some quotes because I like quotes. Um, this is from Bhante Gudnaratna talking about the paradox of impermanence, of anicca is a Pali word. And he said, there is, a, there is another law, the understanding of which is important, it helps in understanding of death, in the understanding of death. So he had been talking about the law of impermanence, right? Everything's impermanent. And then he says, there's another law, the, there's another law, the understanding of, which helps in the understanding of death, it is the law of becoming, or bhava, which is a corollary to the law of change, or nietzsche. The law of becoming, like the law of change, is constantly at work and applies to everything. While the law of change states that nothing is permanent and ever-changing, the law of becoming states that everything is always in the process of changing into something else. Everything is always in the process of changing into something else. Not only is everything changing into something else, but the nature of that change is a process of becoming something else, however short or long the process may be. Briefly put, the law of becoming is this. Nothing is, but is becoming. A ceaseless becoming is the feature of all things. And so we all, I believe, have the idea death is the end. And maybe it is, but the end of what? becomes our question and part of our inquiry, not only as we sit with it here, but as we live our death, we will see what happens. And um, and there's a lot of different ways this is understood. The just if we think about the causes and conditions that came together for us to be born, right? Which, you know, in the simplest sense are two people coming together and the sperm and an egg and then that burst something open, alive, called life, right? And then that grew, right, embryo and bigger and bigger and bigger and then here and here we showed up, right? And then it keeps going. It's not, there's no stasis, right? It keeps moving, right? So it doesn't stop at sperm and egg touching. That's the first thing and then embryo and then development and then baby comes out and then the baby keeps growing and changing. And so this law of becoming is constantly happening. It's, we're constantly, you're all different than you were yesterday. 
You've become something else today. You may not recognize as something else. It may be more subtle than you're used to recognizing. But especially sometimes on long retreat, you really get it. Every moment is actually brand new. And that newness is part of what the urgency can reveal to us. That this is a magical experience. Or, yeah, I'll say magical. It's just becoming, and it continues, and it doesn't stop changing and becoming something else. And even if maybe, okay, maybe when we die, that's the end. Let's, I'm, okay, I'm up, that may be, that may be possible. But even that is actually not the end, right? Because if we're identified with our body, well, then what's happening? Because we've, I believe, both been with, bodies that have died and spent time with them. And you see it keeps going. Doesn't mean it keeps breathing, but it's not, it keeps changing. It's still becoming something else. So if we're our bodies, then we're becoming something else even if we're dead. And if we're not our bodies, well then that brings another question. What are we if we're not our bodies? And that's also a very important question. But, but let's stay with the body. So then the body dies and starts to, and we're going to look at that more closely, what happens to the body when it dies. Because that's part of the teachings of the four foundations of mindfulness, is the contemplation of death and what happens to the body. It's part of mindfulness of the body. What happens to the body when we die? And it starts to, decompose and change shape and form. And we'll, we'll talk about that and look at that tomorrow. And then it becomes something else. The becoming continues, right? So it's a powerful, powerful practice to contemplate death and awaken to this moment. Because this, this moment, right now, I promise you, will never happen again. Whatever happens in two minutes is not this moment. This life that Nikki's pointing to and the urgency that, that uh, Marana Sati can point us to is right here. And how do we want to practice while we're here, given... We don't know how long we'll even be here, really, even though we think we're going to have, you know, have a whole retreat. And good or bad, then we're going home. And we keep, we keep leaning into the future and not landing in the reality that this is the only moment there is right now. It's the only moment there is. Everything else is an idea a fantasy, a projection, a memory, an idea. And they may be wonderful ideas, you know, of home or of what happened or who we're going to see. They're all great. You don't have to get rid of it, but see it for what it is. It's not actually alive this moment. That's not what's here. This is the only moment there is. So I'm going to end with a poem from Rumi.
yeah. And my Persian is not as good as hers, so I think I'll read it in English. <laughs> but, but it is, it's a beautiful poem about death. And Rumi says, I died as a mineral and became a plant. I died as a mineral and became a plant. I died as a plant and rose to animal. I died as an animal and I was a man. Why should I fear? When was I less by dying? I died as a mineral and became a plant. I died as a plant and rose to animal. I, rose, I died as animal and I was a man. Why, why should I fear? When was I less by dying? Yet once more I shall die as man and soar with angels. But even from an angel I must pass on. Right? But even as angel I must pass on, all except God must perish. When I have sacrificed my angel soul, I shall become what no mind ever conceived. Now that's a deep Dharma understanding of reality, in my understanding, in my opinion. Because he's pointing us at what's called in Buddhism as the unconditioned. Right, or Nibbana, or the absolute sometimes it's called. And it's just beautiful poetry and understanding from another time and place and tradition. And it's pointing at a level of freedom that one cannot conceive with one's mind. I'll read it again to end. I died as a mineral and became a plant. I died as a plant and rose to animal. I died as animal and I was a man, a person. Why should I fear? What was I less by dying? When was I less by dying? Yet once more I shall die as man to soar with angels. And even from an angel I must pass on all except God must perish. When I have sacrificed my angel soul, I shall become what no mind ever conceived. Let's sit for a minute, please, before we end.
thank you for your presence here. Please, let's continue and see what we discover as we don't know what's going to happen tonight. There'll be, there will be a period, a half an hour of walking practice before the last formal sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.